Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is our session, Games and Cultural Spaces, and in many ways a really relevant uh, session for us here at ACME. Um, it's that looking at that juncture between the cultural space and games and the importance of looking at how institutions and individuals and organisations are really considering where games fits in. Um, my role is also to introduce our chair today, and that's Lena van der Venter. Uh, Lena is a freelance word herder and a game developer based in Melbourne with a real soft spot for street and pervasive game design as well as video game design. Lena edited the seventh game book in the Game Book Adventure series by Tin Man Games, Temple of the Spider God, and is currently working with them on two more titles in a writing capacity. She's also currently working with a local creative group on an iOS game for children featuring a rich narrative utilising augmented reality technology. Lena was involved with the Free Play Independent Games Festival in 2001 as an associate producer and a speaker and is on the festival's program advisory committee for 2012. She has also spoken at Cherche La Femme, a salon style discussion evening on the topic of women in games and is a games correspondent on community radio and the show Tech Talk Radio on 3WBC 94.1 FM. So catch her on that. So I'm going to invite her up. Thank you. Um, I apologise for my cold. Um, I'll start with that because I have a four-year-old and they're really gross. Um, <laughs> today we're going to discuss the um, challenges involved in creating a cultural framework for exhibiting and programming video games and the role of institutions and festivals in showcasing and defining the canon of the games industry. Um, beyond a quest for legitimacy to our art form, why is it important that games have a presence in these cultural spaces? Exploring this, we have Conrad Bodman, Head of Exhibitions at ACME, Linda Pitt, Executive Manager of Learning and Participation at the State Library of Queensland, Ricardo Peach from Australia Council's InterArts, and Paul Callahan, the Director of the Free Play Independent Games Festival. Our panellists are each going to come up and give short keynote presentations, followed by a chance to comment on each other's presentations, and then some questions from both me and you, the audience, so take some notes. <laughs> um, so without further ado, uh, please welcome Conrad Bodman. Thank you very much. Now you might have to excuse me because I'm still a bit tired from last night. The opening was a bit crazy. But uh, it's absolutely looking wonderful down there. So I hope you all have a chance to go and see the show over the next couple of days if you haven't done so already. Um, so I want to sort of... Uh, tell you a little bit about my, my career in games. Um, I'm not a video game developer or a publisher. I'm a curator, and I've been curating exhibitions around the world in different venues for about 20 years now. And um, 
I've been lucky enough to be able to convince cultural institutions to kind of uh, both invest in very expensive shows like Game Masters, but also to uh, to try and convince institutions that games are, uh, you know, a creative form that should be considered in the same way as we do uh, contemporary visual art, film, television, etc. And uh, I've done a couple of big shows that really touch on the subject of video games. Um, so the first one is um, this exhibition, Game On, which I curated in 2002 at the Barbican Centre. So that for those of you that haven't been there, the Barbican Centre is a huge kind of um, performing um, arts venue in London that also has a big gallery and I curated um, Game On for that um, for that venue um, so G Game On was a very specific show it was the first big video game show that ever taken place in a gallery in London um, and it really looked at the historical trajectory of video games really starting from um, the 1960s and going up to the present day at that point which was in 2002 um, and starting with the uh, the PDP-1. So for those geeks amongst you, you probably know what, what that is. But uh, it was a uh, you know, rare piece of research equipment that came from the, um, uh, the computer museum in San Francisco. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the first game uh, was produced on that piece of equipment. So the show had a certain sense of um, history, um, but also looked at um, the whole kind of idea of game genre um, and you know, really trying to define kind of what video games were, and also look at the cultural context of video games. So, we looked at the connection between um, you know video games and film, and video games and music, etc. And um, it's been very popular. Um, it came to Acme, indeed, in 2008, and um, we had 145,000 people come and see the show. And um, I think it was a really in interesting experience for Acme because obviously we'd done a lot before then on video games but nothing kind of in our main gallery space, Gallery One. And um, we were really surprised by the number of visitors that, that came through and it was interesting. There was a great deal, uh, there was a sense of real cultural validation for, ga for gamers who came to see the exhibition and um, a sense that their um, passion and interest was finally being recognised. And um, that was a really important moment, I think, for video games culture in Australia. And um, many people travelled from all over the country. And um, it was interesting. The, the first day the exhibition opened, I went down to look around the shows I've been doing today. And um, a girl came up to me, and she, she, someone told her who I was, and she came and kind of hugged me and said, this is like the imp most important moment in my life. Um, I've come all the way down from Brisbane today. I've saved up to be here. And... Um, I'm just so pleased that you've kind of decided to look at games in, the, in this way. You know, I'm now validated. It was wonderful. Um, so this, this was the show. Um, it was 125 playable games. And I think, uh, you know, uh, other galleries have attempted to do video games exhibitions and look at games culture. Um, my view is that play should always be the, the starting point of the exhibition. Um, and in, in many ways, it's sort of uh, what we're trying to do is encourage to sort of you know sample a whole range of games. You know, people tend to get very locked down in their own particular areas, the genres that they're interested in. But you know, these these shows have kind of opened up the, the playing field and kind of given people opportunity to play a whole range of kind of games all in the same space. So we had some lovely classic arcades, um, and we also we asked, we also kind of wanted to include a lot of sort of ephemera and um, process-based material. And um, you'll see down in Game, Game Masters downstairs that we've tried to do the same thing. Um, so in this exhibition, we, were, we, we looked at Game Freak and the whole rise of Pokemon and um, told the, uh, the story of Tajiri, who was one of the founders of, um, of the Pokemon, of Game Freak and uh, obviously the Pokemon brand. 
which he developed. Um, and then, uh, you know, I also spent time at um, Rockstar North looking at um, Grand Theft Auto 3, and we borrowed a lot of development materials kind of from their studio. And uh, I think th this is something important that we should probably talk about this afternoon is this whole issue of kind of archiving and um, the way video game games companies kind of um, either do or don't kind of archive material. Because for people like me, it's actually very important to have materials to look at, to kind of explore and to display kind of in, in gallery spaces. And um, it's not always sort of easy to get hold of those sorts of materials. But we, we were lucky because we came in sort of midway through the development period of this game. And uh, we were able to kind of just take things off of the, uh, the office walls, which was fantastic. So there's been some other big shows on happening around the world in uh, the video games field, museums and galleries uh, this year. Um, big show in Paris. I don't know whether anyone saw that show, but um, uh, you know it was the first big video games exhibition kind of at the Grand Palais that happened in Paris this year, um, over 11, 12. Um, and then I'm sure many of you have checked out the, um, the art of video games um, at the Smithsonian Institution. So this is obviously Smithsonian in Washington is an uber big kind of American chain of museums, really significant. And um, they've actually been collecting kind of video game software and, and hardware over the years, but this is their first big kind of um, foray into the field. Um, I guess an interesting contrast with what we've done here, they, they only had five playable games, so... Um, you know, not, not a huge amount of um, kind of capacity to interact, but really, um, you know, I think a, a big focus on video game genre and the whole history of video games. And that show's going to be touring around the States, um, going to 10 venues over the next three years, so it's a very successful kind of tour. Um, I think that, you know, suggests that there's a huge demand in cultural institutions for uh, shows of this kind. So this is us putting up um, Game Masters. Um, so Game Masters was... Um, I guess a bit of a sort of development from, from Game On. Um, I was really keen to look at really the creative practice of um, people who worked in the games industry and um, feeling a lot that, um, you know, auteurs in the video game community are, are not really widely enough known outside their field. And I guess we're in the early history of video games at the moment, so that's not so surprising. It's probably a bit like film in that respect. After 40 years after film was out and about, probably most people didn't know who the actors and directors were, and we're probably... Um, just at that turning point now. And I wanted to actually profile a series of key video game developers that I felt uh, were important. So in devising this exhibition, we've talked to a lot of um, people in the games industry, uh, developers themselves, gamers, journalists, uh, academics, and um, you know, come up with a selection of, um, of uh, auteur video game developers that we feel are really important and um, you know, deserve to be uh, profiled for, the, for their work, but of course acknowledging that games are made by teams of people, um, as are films, of course. So um, we have searched the world for a collection of arcade games, and uh, you know this is another, another difficulty, of course, that um, a lot of the material isn't readily available, so it's not easy for me to go to another museum collection and say, can I borrow your kind of collection of classic arcade games? There are some museums that have them, like MoMI in New York has, had, has got a really comprehensive collection of, um, of arcade games, but they don't have anybody that can maintain them and make them work, so they're all in store and um, uh, they're, they're just sitting there. So, you know, obviously when we're doing shows like this, it's really important to have a proper technical infrastructure in place, and that's really why we can do these shows at Acme, is that, you know, we have that really massive kind of AV and IT backup and um, we also have people that we've found that are great at electronics and can fix boards and 
Um, we've got lots of spares, but you know, really, it's, it's a huge amount of thinking that goes goes through kind of um, showing this kind of material in the exhibition, and um, you know, it needs nurturing, kind of an ongoing basis. They're babies; these arcade games, they sometimes they fall ill. They need nurturing, and um, you know, we, we we bring them back into good health. So that's pretty much what the exhibition's looking like. The second section called Game Changes, Changes is really a focus on 14 individuals. So, um, you know, Warren and Tim are obviously key fo foci kind of in that, that section. But we also wanted to get coverage internationally. So I was really keen to get, you know, uh, representation from a number of um, what I felt to be really important Japanese video game developers. So we've been traveling around meeting people. So, you know, we went to meet um, Yu Suzuki, the big arcade game developer in Japan, and uh, Tetsuya Mizuguchi and Hideo Kojima. And really, you know, wanted to engage the individual developers in creating the displays. So we, we really treated the developers as we would artists. You know, we do a lot of art shows at Acme as well. And, um, you know, uh, Hideo Kojima's been very involved in the way that his material is presented in the exhibition. And um, there's been a huge amount of dialogue between him individually and his staff, um, as there has been with all of the developers. So it's, um, you know, we haven't just plonked stuff on the wall, although it might seem like that sometimes. But, um, you know, there's been a huge amount of individual dialogue that takes place, um, which is why these shows take so many years to put on. And of course, we've, we've had to go out and visit people and, um, and look at their collections too. Um, so we, you know, as a development from Game On in 2002, you know, there's been this huge kind of um, rise in, in indie practice, kind of, I suppose, over the last 10 years that I really wanted to represent in the exhibition. Um, this is the Indies section. Of course, Indies have been around forever, since the, uh, since the 70s. I guess a lot of the arcade developers were Indies in, in a way. Um, so we're, we're, we're representing Indies past and present. So people like um, Matsuya Matsura, for example, who's been around for kind of decades, um, uh, all the way through to you know, some of the more contemporary mobile um, game developers and so on. But you know, we've had a, a lot of very fruitful dialogue with e each of the companies and um, you know, really tried to deal directly with the individuals and teams that are making, making the games themselves and um, have a really kind of interesting creative dialogue. So this is, I mean, design is really important um, to us. I mean, it, we, we want to kind of provide an experience um, for visitors that is different to the one they might get in a commercial arcade or at a kind of more commercial trade show. And, um, you know, I think, I think if, for those of you that have seen the exhibition, you, you, you'll realise that kind of um, this fluorescent colour is something we really try to, try, try to bring out. And um, we appointed an architect, Claire Cousins, to design the exhibition. So these are some of our original kind of concepts. Um, you know, we wanted to bring out kind of, um, you know, the neon of, of the kind of classic arcade and make that... Um, uh, prevalent. Um, we've used this poll system as a way of, um, you know, displaying games and video interviews and so on. Um, and there you can see it in the gallery. And then very specific furniture that's been designed to tour because this show is going to go on to other venues around the world. Um, and then some of this lovely Perspex um, that we've got Sing, Sing Star and um, Rock Band kind of displayed in. And then our, um, our Dance Central stage. So if, if any of you have been down the gallery today, you'll notice that this is a very popular exhibit. Um, concept artwork is so important for us. And um, as I said, some, some developers have got amazing archives, and um, we, we thank them for all their support. In fact, some of them have got curators like me, which is amazing, including uh, Blizzard, which has been fantastic to work with. And then the strapping goes across the building. Um, but not yet. It's not up yet. The missing link. <laughs> uh, 
Um, some other games activity at ACME. Our IGF exhibition, which is a sort of long-standing commitment to games at, at ACME that we've been running over a number of years now, which you can see is free. Um, and the way the strapping comes through the building, creating a kind of beautiful link sort of from the website through to the building and to the gallery of itself. We've also done an e-book, so we've a lot of digital outputs for this, uh, this show. When I did Game On, kind of the digital domain didn't really exist. People didn't really have um, mobile phones that did much at that point. Um, so we've now been able to do kind of um, a great website, uh, a game download, and an e-book. We're doing a whole series of video conference events as well, um, which will all be kind of uh, available to download from our website. So, you know, times have really, really changed for exhibitions, and our ability to get what we're doing out there to the community has, um, has really changed massively. So I think there's a huge potential in video games kind of in cultural spaces. I'm working on a couple of other shows, sort of longer term, um, and, you know, I think um, ACME is providing a kind of great platform for uh, this area of activity. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope you get time to go down and see the show whilst you're here and in, in, enjoy it. And, um, you know, please feedback comments to me uh, in the corridors and ask me questions later. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, Conrad. Um, I can relate to that woman who felt validated by your work, so thank you. <laughs> um, if we could welcome to the stage, please, Linda Pitt. Okie doke, thank you. Um, so, as um, Helen and Lena said earlier, I am from State Library of Queensland. Um, I do have to say up front that I'm not a librarian, even though I am wearing a cardigan. Um, so don't judge me on that. Um, but I won't ask you to shush, and I don't know anything about um, Dewey Decimal Systems or anything like that. So we're safe. We're okay together. Um, okay, so um, we actually partnered with Acme to um, end the Barbican to take on Game On um, back in the um, summer of 2008-2009. And um, so this, of course, was big in the front of our uh, building. And um, some of the quotes... Um, that came out during that time and also a time where we installed um, mega-sized board games into um, the space that we called the parlour. Um, the, the 4000 website started um, calling State Library the new time zone, so the cool place to be, and I still think it is. Um, but that was a really big time for us in terms of games, and um, you'll see as I talk through how we're attempting to revive that period again. Um, to give you a little bit of context, um, State Library of Queensland sees about 1.2 to 1.8 million people a year through the library, and we're in this fabulous space, if any of you uh, haven't been there or have been there. Um, we're in a cool space because we've got Goma next door, we've got the art gallery, the museum, and we have the Performing Arts Centre, so we really are a big cultural precinct. It's quite rare to have uh, that many cultural institutions kind of in the one space and time. We have triple that in our online engagement space and so we're really working on how do we reach across Queensland because Queensland is a huge state and um, with a public library network of about 300 uh, public libraries and, in, and also Indigenous knowledge centres, how do we reach and share what we do and, and also look at what they're doing out in regions as well. So we've got to think about not only the users on site but the rest of the population of Queensland as well. 
our role at State Library and where we really see ourselves is in that really challenging the status quo, you know, really taking that concept of a library with dusty books and a librarian at the front that lets you borrow things out, just absolutely flipping that on, on its head. And so that's really the role of State Library and how we link up with the rest of the public library network. And also looking at how we deliver information and knowledge um, and really challenging that as well. And so I'll talk to you a little bit further later about the gamification of some of our actual services that um, have been quite traditional in previous years. So um, we also are in this fabulous space where we're partnering with really lead creative industry groups to make stuff happen. Um, so it might be the development of innovation, communicating, kind of being the broker house between the artist and the, the producer or the publisher. And so we're, the library's again in this really interesting time where we might be starting to turn some of those traditional industries on their head and hopefully we can talk about that a little bit later. We also, I think because we now have better systems and better platforms to ask our clients about what they want, we were finding out that they are demanding more and they want more and they want us to gamify the library and make it exciting and make it interesting, so we have to do something about that. Um, for us too, we've got really five key programming areas. So we've got Queensland's memory, which is kind of the collection side of things, and that's the stuff, the images, the photographs, and I'll talk a little bit further later about our um, ongoing issue with collecting games and, and kind of that games industry. We've got Keeping Culture Strong, which is really looking at the um, Indigenous culture in particular, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Uh, reading, Writing and Ideas, Asia-Pacific Design and the Digital Agenda. So you can really see how games and the, the subject of games kind of weaves in and out of all of those areas, whether it be from creation right through to innovation and, and all in between and the different disciplines within that. So um, in 2007, this is actually the parlour space, which is where um, you saw all those kind of kids clapping and playing before. And um, this is where 4000 was talking about the new time zone space because it was board games on steroids. Um, there was oversized snakes and ladders and chess competitions and old favourites. And um, I remember going in there, you know, almost every weekend when there was really nothing to do and going in there and having an amazing time um, and depending on you know, what games were out there at the time. And um, we've adopted that kind of board game philosophy again in some of our exhibitions just recently where we wanted to um, design the exhibition and have people really understand the content, young people. So we decided to create a board game out of some of the cultural content um, where we had little Lego men stick figures walking around and you could pay money, you know, and all sorts of things. And surprisingly, the Lego didn't get stolen, so... Um, and we had so many kids playing it. So, um, you know, for us it's about helping people understand our collections or understanding the history through game, which is pretty um, exciting and rare in some of our cultural institutions across Australia. Um, game On, as I said earlier, came to State Library of Queensland in 2008-2009 uh, for a couple of months. There was about 47,000 visitors um, during that time and, and at that time Queensland was really thriving um, in game development companies and independent designers and composers and academics and educators. And they all still exist today, but um, yeah, I was talking with um, Truna and Luby Thomas um, a couple of weeks ago and it was just trying to find where they all are now because maybe they're not as big and uh, established, but they're still out there in Queensland and they're still doing that work. Either that or they're here and you might be in the audience and then in that case I might be contacting you soon. Um, and so 
it really stimulated the, the new conversation around collection development for us and um, that, you know, we, yeah, we had books on games and we had books on games development, but what about the games themselves and the games ephemera, so all of the posters and the T-shirts and the, all sorts of things. So we haven't actually solved that yet, um, but again, we're going to try and revive that over the uh, next couple of months at least. 41% of those visitors that came to Game On had never come to the library before. So that's almost half. And for me, the biggest worry for me is that 41% of those people have never come back since. Or hopefully they have, but maybe to the edge as an edge client. So, um, you know, how do we keep that 45, uh, 41%? How do we keep bringing them back to the library and engaging them in a form that clearly they're keen on? Um, some of the outcomes of Game On, which were quite powerful and we're continuing to see, is um, the influence and the purpose and design of the edge, uh, which is what you saw in the video, and really the edge's vision and direction, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And also the influencing of programming in public libraries. Um, this is actually um, a new public library that was developed uh, about a year ago out at Caboolture, which is kind of um, out Moreton Bay area. And um, they developed an entire Game On stream, in fact, um, where they have game development and they have teens coming in on the weekend, game reviewing. And so it's, um, that's really core for them. And that's actually probably their biggest audience group at the moment is games and gaming in that gaming community. So um, again, they're looking at that and going, well, bump the books and let's just spread out the space and make it um, a place where kids can come and learn about game development and, um, and that particular industry, which is extremely exciting for us and them. Secret SLQ um, was um, a game that we actually just launched last week and published ourselves at um, State Library, so it's a very exciting time for us. Um, in 2011-12, we've had just over um, 3,500 school students come to the library and we had about 500 educators come with them. And um, we would take them on tours of the library and, you know, when you're dragging 26, 14-year-olds through the library, they, you know, they start to want to die. So, um, <laughs> and it's really hard as a tour person, like, yeah, this is exciting. And no, that's really not. So, um but, and then the teachers, on the other hand, were saying, well, we want a deeper learning experience. We really want them to research. And it, so it was just this struggle between making it super fun and exciting and then this deep learning research and why were they different. So this is where we started to think about, well, we actually need to build a game around this. We need to build something that has deep learning um, core understanding behind it as well as being able to link to research and collection that they're not different, they are one and the same. So um, we started embarking on building this particular app and um, so we wanted to target kind of that school group um, age group and it's that weird age group too that a lot of people forget about so it's not early years and it's not senior years and it's that middle years weird group where they're growing weird teeth and look a bit gangly and that's the age group that we really wanted to target. So Secret SLQ basically takes you on this kind of mystery tour um, through the library and it has all of these challenges and you can level up and um, you have to go around and find these secret QR codes and take photos of things and you get to create your own content and then you um, have a leaderboard so you can see who you're kind of beating in the library and um, for us in the library we actually get to change that content quite regularly so that when school students or kids come back they can actually find new content and create new things and have new challenges and um, we had a our first test group 
through um, last week and um, to actually see 12-year-olds get really excited and kind of running around the library trying to find QR codes and things in different books, it's, it's cool. And afterwards, um, you know, we asked them, did they learn anything? And they're like, yeah, you know, that was like, oh, that was a bit disappointing for them. But, um, you know, for us, it kind of went, yes, tick, excellent. So we... Um, We'll continue down that path because it's obviously a winner, but also it made us look and see our library and our collections in a really different way and, um, and explore different fields rather than just kind of presenting something and then hoping people will like it. Um, the other kind of games that we do develop are mainly um, online games. So we have kind of the, the big um, summer reading club with amazing reads. And so we have a lot of games that we publish and develop to encourage kids to read or dads to read to their kids. And so if you go onto the summer reading club website, there's a whole heap of stuff with hidden libraries and animation, um, editing. And, um, and we do a lot of that in the library as well, a lot of programming around um, kind of the back end of games and animating and composing and and um, writing narrative and storyboarding. So uh, we do a lot of the behind the scenes as well as kind of just producing at the same time. So um, The Edge, and you would have seen The Edge briefly on the video, and The Edge was one of those outcomes from Game On and also from a number of other sectors where it was... Um, we had the library, but we really needed a space and a place where people could come together and um, from all different sectors freelance or not and um, be able to create and innovate and share conversations in one area so the edge was born and so we've got state library of queensland the mothership um, the edge is a separate building and just to the side of that and really their mandate is around digital culture it's around science art technology and enterprise so um, what they've seen there is a lot of people kind of from all different sectors coming together and morphing on one one particular project or you've got a lot of people working from home who just happen to share a lab and then all of a sudden the amazing conversations start um, and they also um, bring on catalysts as well. So they employ people for particular periods of time to, to stimulate those spaces and to get things happening. Um, this was one of their big programs, and that, we'll see that again this year, um, but with a different theme, but again around gaming. And... Um, because they look at science and art and, and use gamification in some of those areas, but this was really dedicated on gaming and really looking at the industry in particular in uh, 2011. IGF was actually a main feature um, of um, Body and Console at the time. Um, board games made a feature and um, were extremely popular during that time, people just coming back and reminiscing all over the place and Scategories was constantly being used. Um, there were lots of ARG projects and one of those outcomes that there was about five actually playable published, publishable games by the end of Body and Console which just came out of about two months worth of programming. There was Lands, there was the International Animation Day and then there was these amazing amount of workshops and masterclasses and that was where the the real winner was because for a lot of people they just wanted time to sit and to learn something new and to connect with someone else and so that's really we, where we see our bang for buck these days is just providing that deeper understanding around the behind the scenes not necessarily always showcasing the outcome. So there's kind of two roles that we play in that space. Um, this year, we um, in January, State Library of Queensland has decided that we are going to curate our own um, Summer of Games or Games Lounge. Um, it's not Game On, it's not Games Masters. It's, um, 
and we're trying to even make it not an exhibition. It's kind of this weird space. Um, and it's really about exposing new research that's out there, and especially in Queensland. We wanted to make it a Queensland-focused kind of resuscitate some of that spirit there and um, to work with people in the field um, of games in Queensland. And um, we wanted to focus on every part of the game, so but the behind the scenes, the code, the platform, the people, the design, um, the significant cultural history, um, and albeit a short history, especially in Queensland, but um, certainly one that exists and also expose the myriad of industries and artists that are out there, from music composers to storytellers. Um, because I was, you know, in a lot of conversations that I've had recently, they go, oh, Linda, are you a gamer? Is that why you're doing it? It's like, no, no, I'm actually really interested in the multidisciplinary approach that we have to gaming, and that's what is so exciting, is that we can bring all of those industries together in the one space and create something absolutely beautiful and amazing. So, and it's then when they start to think, oh, I don't necessarily have to be a gamer, I could be from a number of different industries. So we're going to use the expertise of the edge, we're going to engage some of those um, clients as well and really seek out to the, to the industries that do exist and also the, the startups, the people who just want to get their stuff off the ground and want a place to showcase, want a place to test with audiences for free, be able to potentially publish their game and have it in the space and see what people think of it. So we want to um, start playing with this platform as library as potentially distributor, publisher, who knows um, what the outcome of um, Games Lounge will be or Summer of Games. And that leads me to kind of my final point, which is around game preservation and collection. So um, as Conrad was saying, you know, the Smithsonian's got their collection and um, Illinois University has a collection and um, we don't have a collection. The museum doesn't have a collection. So in Queensland, we've got this huge deficit at the moment because we don't really have anyone that's collecting on um, a dedicated scale. Um, and so... The questions that we're constantly asking ourselves are, what do we preserve? You know, it, do we preserve the console and then do we have the technical expertise, as Conrad was saying, to have the upkeep? Um, when do we start? Because we start now and we've got, you know, yeah, 40 years of collecting that we've missed out on. So do we just start from today and collect forward? Do we um, do some retrospective collecting? What technology are we going to need in the future to make this stuff run? Um, copyright and IP is a huge one. You know, if you have to um, change the format so that it's still playable in the future on other devices, who owns the copyright and IP for that and can we track them down? Um, and also the cultural materials, so all the game-related ephemera as well. And so that's something where... That's the other reason, I guess, why we're doing Summer of Games or Games Lounge is to actually put profile on that conversation again because each time that it disappears, you know, the games kind of thing disappears from the library and we go into a new programming space, it just kind of disappears with it. So we want to keep that conversation happening and, and get some action um, happening around that, which is extremely critical for us. So that's State Library of Queensland. That's where we're at at the moment. And um, thanks. Cheers. Thank you, Linda. Um, I'd like to congratulate you on being the only person to say the word gamification in the presence of Paul Callahan and leave <laughs> alive. So well done. Um, can we please welcome to the stage Ricardo Peach?
Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, talk today uh, on behalf of the Australia Council for the Arts. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we are presenting on and pay my respects to their elders past and presence, the Kula Nation, um, and also, you know, everybody for, for turning up and ACME for inviting uh, me to speak. What I'm going to talk about um, today is um, the Australia Council quite uh, briefly, you know, what it is that we do. We uh, fund really exciting art, basically. And um, we do that by providing grants, you know, promoting the arts, building capacity for the arts, and through research and policy. And come talk to me afterwards if you want more detail. Today I'm going to talk about what I've termed art and games. I've kind of created these categories uh, that, you know, has, has formulated in my mind, but these categories are not by no means solid and uh, they're open to be contested, so <laughs> please feel free to come and uh, tell me what works for you and what doesn't work for you, but that's kind of the big heading what I, what I thought I could talk to you about. And under that heading, I've divided it into, um, uh, you know, categories called what, what I call game art, art video games, game-like art, game culture interventions, and game culture initiatives. And uh, I did remove gamification from there because I got on Twitter and it wasn't on. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe each one in a little bit detail when I get to each slide. <clears throat> and some of it I might have to skip through quite quickly because I know we, we've got some time limits here. And so again, come speak to me afterwards if I skip through things um, that you want more detail on. So the first um, area that I call game art is kind of art that integrates rules, structured play, and a reward-fail system into the artwork itself. That's kind of my definition of it, but again, that's open for interpretation. And this uh, first example is a work by a PVI collective called Transumer, and Transumer was uh, part of the Biennale of Sydney in 2010, and also won the best game writing in the inaugural Free, free Play Independent Games Festival in 2010. And it's kind of a, what's called a tactical media game. Tactical media game means you kind of run around the city and you know, intervene in public space and think about it in different ways. And a lot of artists that are playing this space are kind of exploring social, social and cultural habits and, and laws and rituals that we have for us to rethink about it ourselves and our environment and our place in society in different ways. So they're very interventionist. And I think that's from all the art that I'm presenting kind of are really, is really interventionist and questions our, our notion of a, cult, a present cultural reality. So Transumer uh, was uh, followed by another a PVI collective um, work called Deviator, and Deviator was a little bit similar. This one was at APAM, and you kind of had to run around with your uh, mobile uh, device and hit QR codes and you know, get little uh, badges and achievements and then uh, perform really embarrassing things in public spaces. And so, you know, I had to... That wasn't me in the sack, but I was tweeting and sacking at the same time running across, uh, you know, big roads in, in, a, in a sack or doing some pole dancing uh, in public spaces. And I won't go into detail for that one, but you got badges for different moves that you made. Uh, and then the scariest one was trying to run away from the clown uh, that, tried, that was trying to kiss you. And uh, another interesting work, you know, that was previous to PVI's uh, work by Martin Coots and Kate Richards called... Um, Wayfarer, and uh, there were two iterations of this one in Sydney and one in Melbourne, I think. Uh, this one, again, also was four, you know, four players and four participants, in a sense, had one player that they kind of had to guide through the space to collect items 
and get to a point where the one beats the other one. So there was a winner in the end with this way of Faro game. So the, the audience who were there had to guide the players through remote video cam and sound and, you know, all got a little bit boisterous and fun there near the end. This one is, an, is a work called Pemawi Dream Team by uh, You Are Here. And this was based on, you know, Zanny Begg and Keg D'Souza worked with the Redfern community in Sydney to develop a work that really looked at Redfern as he was going through this kind of tremendous social and, and uh, political change a few years ago. And uh, it's based on a character called Pemawi, who's a member of the Bidjabal clan of the Eora uh, people. And he was a warrior and, you know, fought in the indigenous wars. And so with this work, the, the, you had to kind of beat both the developers or the wreckers, as they were called, uh, with your little Wii console, uh, and you had to kind of beat the drug dealers. So sometimes the drug dealers won, sometimes the wreckers won, sometimes you won. It was uh, always, a, always a touch and go moment there. And these are the twins who actually, uh, it's their, it was their idea. They live in Redfin, it was their idea to develop this game to kind of save their community. Uh, and this one is a, a work by Keith Armstrong. It's a very beautiful work. It's called Intimate Transactions, and it, it's based on what he calls a you know, telepresence body shelf um, infrastructure. So you're strapped to this particular body shelf uh, and in another room or in another city, because it's connected over the inter internet, somebody else is strapped to a body shelf as well, and you've got these kind of tangible interfaces strapped onto you, and your movement and the movement of the person in the other space, uh, you know, shifted these objects in front of you, these uh, kind of mini avatars that you had to move around with. And you had to learn how to move, you know, in an intimate transaction with the other person to get these objects to particular spaces and, and, and save them from destruction in a sense. And so when the avatars got together, as you can see there at the top, you could move these objects around. And if you didn't quite get in sync with the other person, uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't save the creatures or help uh, those little uh, animals survive in the ecosystem of intimate transactions. This beautiful work is um, called Elements by uh, Jonathan Duckworth. And this was developed to help traumatic brain injury uh, patients recover some of their uh, motor neuron skills. So it, it's a sonic work and it's also a visual work and you had to, you know, complete particular tasks or connect particular images and texts up for um, you to kind of get through particular levels. So this is a, uh, another form of um, game art that is also about rehabilitation and assisting people to, um, you know, gain upper body strength and uh, uh, recognition. You've seen this one before. This is Lucas Abella, and Lucas uh, developed this work, Vinyl Arcade, uh, with the Digital Culture Fund that the Australia Council had. Oh, there we go. And he's been touring the world ever since. Every <laughs> everybody loves this work, and uh, you know, uh, he draws crowds from from miles away. So, you know, if you want him in Melbourne, uh, talk to him. Oh, this next work. Oh, let's go back there. Am I pointing that in the right direction? Great. This is a, a work by Troy Innocent and Indai Huang. And this one was in ISEA 2011. ISEA is the Inter International Symposium of Electronic Arts. This was in Turkey. And again, through these QR codes and mobile devices, you had to activate the kind of ecosystems or the little worlds that were connected to these particular QR codes and seed the other QR codes 
by going, you know, walking through the city and gaining access to these particular sites and developing a new language. So these languages seeded each other as you walk from one site to the next in this little virtual world, kind of evolved um, in, your, in your space. This one, although we didn't fund this one directly, we have funded work with iCinema, is the... Um, well, is our cinema at the University of uh, New South Wales. And I, I wanted to put this in because I think this is a really interesting uh, development in you know, interactive and immersive you know, 360-3D you know, audience engagement work that's, that has a form of gaming in it. Because with this work, you had to work um, together to go through this kind of very dark space. This, this um, is based on you know, the, the story of Fritzl, who... You know, kept his daughter in the cellar for many years and had children by her, so it's a very dramatic story. But what you had to do as an audience is work together with these artificial intelligences to kind of help collect uh, components of this child and bring it back together to the child so that the child could heal. It was a very moving piece and beautifully done, and it was in 3D as well, so quite an extraordinary collective gaming environment in, in a sense um, to help this child survive that, that trauma. Then, um, uh, touching on what I call you know, art video games, and art video games, you know, in a definition that I developed, is kind of electronic games, you know, artistically transformed or created from scratch as an artwork. And this, this work uh, is, is Anita Fontaine's Cute X Doom. And Cute X Doom was um, based on Unreal Tournament 3, where she kind of reconfigured it and turned um, some of the, the work in uh, Unreal Tournament. I'm not sure if this is from Unreal Tournament, but this is from, un uh, this is from Qtex Doom, where um, she, uh, you, you kind of went into this cutesy world and you collected these cutesy little teddy bears and you know, you got through th this particular level. And then what, once you got through that level, suddenly cutesy Doom turned into psychotic hell where all these little cutesy creatures started to kind of eat you and bite you and you had to kind of get out of this psychosis of consumerism and save yourself by getting out, um, out, out, out of that level again by you know, get, getting rid of all the things that you, <laughs> that you bought. So I think uh, Anita Fontaine's work is quite beautiful in terms of this art video game space. So then you know, I turn to what I've called game-like art. I didn't want to kind of call it non-games because it's kind of game-like art, again, thanks to to Twitter, uh, I managed to get this one, and free play Twitter in particular. Um, Game-like practice, and this work is called Melifera by uh, Trish Burrell and uh, Warren Armstrong. This is at QUT in Queensland. And this is a biofeedback uh, piece uh, based, you know, this one was based in Second Life, where people had, again, these tangible interfaces that they, that they reacted with, and they put energy or <coughs> into these tangible interfaces to feed into the actions of the bees in this space. And so the bees, Melifera, um, then either kind of died if, you know, the actions were too, too uh, aggressive or kind of grew and multiplied if the actions were gentle and um, conducive to an ecological development in a space. So it was an ecological work. It talked about how we have to, to tread gently in the spaces that we inhabit. And the bees themselves gave feedback to the people in the space as well through these beautiful water bowls. So the the water vibrated depending on how the bees in the virtual space felt. This one is by George Coote and this one is cardiomorphologies. Cardiomorphologies measured your heart rate and your, your breath and basically, it's again, it's another biofeedback piece where you uh, learn how to breathe and create these beautiful images based on the internalisation of 
your understanding of your own body and how you're experiencing your own body physically. He continued this one uh, with a work called Heart Library, and Heart Library was at Westmead uh, Hospital, and I think it's still being used there for, with kids to kind of assist them in pain management. And basically it was kind of an invert, inverted uh, out-of-body experience where you saw your body floating above you, and depending on, again, your breath and how you were uh, dealing with your, you know, your experience of your inner physical self, uh, the images above you change and you could change colours as well depending on how much, how fast your heart was beating or how, um, how fast you were breathing. And then you were asked also to draw a little bit about your, your experience of your, of your inner self. And I think it was a very beautiful work that um, is still continuing and people are very excited about that work. This one is Augmentiforms by um, Warren Armstrong and Andrew Burrell. This is part of Isaiah 2013. Uh, 2011, sorry, in Istanbul as well. And you had to kind of grab these little augmented reality critters from a virtual world and then take them out into the real world with you on your mobile device and assist them in finding a space for themselves in the world outside. So they kind of got their GPS coordinates and that you couldn't let them go until they were happy with their space. So you had to follow them and make sure that you kept them alive until they found a little spot that they were happy with and then you could let them go. But you couldn't let them go before they were happy. And this fabulous work, I just love this one. This is it's called Metaverse Makeovers with uh, Tia Bauman, and it's an exploration of augmented reality nails. And so it's, a, it, it's again, it's a play, sp play space, so it's play-like in a sense, where um, you kind of have these QR codes put on your nails and then you look through a mobile device at your nails and these amazing jewellery uh, bits kind of pop out of your nails. And, you know, I hope she makes a fortune out of this um, in uh, China and Taiwan and where she is at the moment. She's in China, in Shanghai at the moment. So that work, again, was funded through the Digital Culture Fund. What's happening, and I think this is kind of... I've observed this with all the, the work that's come to the Australia Council, is that this push of getting augmented and virtual reality out into the, uh, into the outside world is kind of getting stronger and stronger. And so this beautiful experimental piece by Alejandro Rolandi, working with Stalker, was to kind of develop virtual costumes. So there's these kind of... Uh, contraptions that he's developed to kind of project a virtual reality onto a performer as well. So I think this kind of digital dramaturgy in this electronic um, performance is going to evolve much more strongly in the future as well. Then uh, this work is called by Jimmy McGillcrest, Curious Creatures, and this is part of what was called the Splendid Initiative with Splendor in the Grass and a young uh, artist laboratory that was held up in Lismore in uh, the northern rivers of New South Wales where Jimmy developed these, these creatures that were projected onto these fences and these creatures were developed in game engines and there were also sensors on the fence so the, the uh, creatures read your body presence when you got near the fence and then projected your shadows onto the fence and then the creatures started interacting with your shadows and there was a beautiful sonic environment there as well so it's kind of you were in this alien landscape with these creatures uh, playing with you or kind of running away from you depending again how your shadow reacted with you. And uh, there was a lot of prototyping happening, and Jimmy had a lot of fun prototyping the work. And this is at Splendor, as they say. It was an audience of you know, more than 30,000, so the, the, uh, the software had to really work its way into, into their hearts and make sure that they functioned. So Jimmy is off to um, uh, South Africa next week, and I think I'll, I'll, I'm going as well to go, because I'm from South Africa, but I'll be seeing the work there in a huge festival called the Freyfiest Festival. There's more than 250,000 people, so... I hope the creatures survive uh, <laughs> South Africa. Um, so the 
I'm almost near the end. The, the other definition, the other category that I kind of developed looking at the works that we've funded in the last few years um, is called Game Culture Intervention. And this work by Blood Policy and AFIDS is a very interesting work and it's called Computer Boy. And I think what they've done is they, they're critiquing game culture itself. So I don't think it's a negative. I think it's actually quite positive because they, they're saying game culture is a very important part of our existence. And if we're going to take it seriously, we also have to critique it seriously because it is, it is our reality. So Blood Policy and, uh, you know, Computer Boy through Blood Policy and AFIS look at, looks, looks at things like sexism and racism and homophobia and a whole range of other things that might exist in some of these gaming culture environments and, uh, you know, asks questions about how we can reflect on what it is that we do in these gaming environments and how to make it work for everybody. And uh, there's a little baby computer boy. <laughs> it's quite a fun piece, so if you've got time to see it, do it. And, uh, you know, lastly, is uh, an area that I call game culture initiatives that the Australia Council has supported over the last few years. This one was through the Australian Centre of Virtual Art, uh, based here in Melbourne. And this group uh, held a, a national laboratory here with people from around, artists from around Australia who worked with virtual reality, you know, in... The in the different formats that people work with, uh, virtual reality, motion capture, virtual worlds, a range of those uh, things. And they kind of ask you know, difficult questions and interesting questions about where they want to take virtual art. And so they developed the Manifesto of Virtual Art, and that's online, so if you want to go check out the Manifesto of Virtual Art, some of it you can read there. But I love their last... Um, you know, they, they're saying that, you know, many people grow up with gaming, gaming is going to stay here, our world is going to look uh, like, you know, Computer games are a very important part of our world and uh, contemporary art will be virtual or it will not be. So that's a <laughs> big, big call. We'll hold them accountable for that one. And as Justin uh, previously said in the previous session, the Australia Council was also uh, working with an Australia Research Council grant with the QUT on a, on a big project called Interactive Media Innovation where artists will be placed in gaming, gaming companies to mutually develop with those gaming companies new ideas about creativity and artistic expression. So I think that one would be quite interesting. And then, of course, uh, the Inter International Symposium of Electronic Arts is happening in Sydney next year, in June. It's back after 21 years. It's not been here for, uh, you know, for that long. It's a major, major project that, you know, will see many artists from around the world come to Australia. So I'll yeah, put it in your diary now. And Marcus Westbury, who's the Artistic Director of ISEA, was also the co-founder of um, Free Play. And so, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting game art uh, in, in Isaiah. And that's it from me. And if you've got any questions, you know, please come and talk to me. And just uh, saying, you know, the Australia Council is always open for fabulous new ideas involving um, games and art. So come talk to me. Thank you. Thank you, Ricardo. I need to find 2,000 records now, so thanks for that. Um, could you please welcome to the stage Paul Callahan? Hi, everyone. Um, I sort of feel that I maybe don't need to talk because Freeplay is continually mentioned today. Um, but that's all right. I'm the director of the Freeplay Independent Games Festival. And when uh, I was asked to sort of talk about games and cultural spaces, I originally thought that what I would do was talk about festivals around the world, kind of provide some sort of framing discussion about what a festival is and how festivals have evolved. But as I, as I was thinking about things like 
Indicate and the IGF and Game City in Nottingham, I realized that they were all very different and they were all responding to their local geographical and political situations. And so I couldn't really talk to them in any sort of meaningful way. So what I thought I would do instead is pretty much just spend 10 minutes talking about free play because it is something that I know a lot about. Um, so to give you a little bit of history, um, free play is a festival in its DNA. It was started by Next Wave in 2004 uh, under Marcus Westbury, who was the creative director at the time, and Catherine Neal. Um, this is what it looked like. Um, the first one was held in a converted karate dojo on Swanston Street, where I believe there was still blood on the floor. And while, while people were sort of bumping out their games, there was a band bumping in um, just after them. So it was very sort of seat of the pants, very sort of punk aesthetic, very sort of we're not sure if anyone's going to turn up. But lots of people did turn up. Um, and Next Wave ran it again in 2005 and 2007 at Acme with the, the support of, of where we are now. Um, and it was described back then as a conference uh, for all three of those. And that's a really important kind of distinction and a really important word that I'm going to return to. And the other thing you'll notice is that they use... It's two words. It's free play, um, which, again, is probably might appear to be a semantic argument to many of you, but I'm going to return to it in a bit as well to talk about why that's hugely important. Um, we took it over in 2009. Uh, how that happened was that my co-director at the time, Eve Penford-Dennis, called up Next Wave and said, hey, what's happening with free play? And they said, well, we, you know, we're moving in a new direction. We're not, probably not going to run it. Um, do you know anyone who might want a festival? Uh, and even I worked opposite each other, and she turned to me and said, do you want a festival? And I said, sure, how hard can that be? It's very hard. If anyone ever asks, do you want a festival? You say no. Um, but we ran it uh, in August. We moved to a new venue at the State Library of Victoria, who were hugely supportive. Uh, we got 600 people through uh, that first time. Um, and then in 2011, we were over 2,000 people. So we've grown by a huge amount. And it's reflective of both the, the kind of the place that the festival occupies, but also the, the interest in games and gaming culture and game development culture um, and the maker culture as well. Um, it's also grown, we've also in 2010 incorporated as a not-for-profit. For that first one in 2009, we were uh, under, still under the auspices of Next Wave. But Free Play is now its own organization. It has a board um, that I report to. We have an advisory committee. We have staff. Um, and I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit about the, the value of not-for-profits uh, because... It's an, it's an organizational structure that, that I think a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of about how it operates. If you're in the kind of an art space, not-for-profits are everywhere. Um, but if you're in video games, it tends to, to fall under the sort of the industrialized model of you're a studio or you're, you're nobody. Um, whereas a not-for-profit is in this weird place where we, we don't make, we have a surplus, we don't make profit, basically. That's, that's kind of the key distinction. Um, so I want to talk about this. Um, and this is something that I only realized uh, yesterday while I was in the shower. Um, free play in 2004 was kind of a political response to the development situation that was happening back then. Uh, it was heavily studio-dominated. It was largely all licensed uh, titles. There were studios that sort of had an awful lot of the same personalities because they'd grown out of other studios, people had left and started their own studios and taken a lot of the same practices. 
So really, those sort of first festivals um, or conferences, as they, as they were back then, were about freeing play. And that sounds quite lame, but I think it's really important because it was about people making the things that they wanted to make. It was about people trying to break out of that industrial system. It was about people trying to find their voice as artists. It was about people trying to move in a direction that felt more personally satisfying to them while also trying to find a language separate from industrial imperatives, separate from distribution, separate from um, starting studios. And I think it's hugely important. Um, and I wish I'd realized that four years ago when we changed the name to Free Play, all one word, because we did actually, like, even I had a big conversation about it. Do we make it two words? Do we make it one word? And I think the reason we made it one word was largely because it gave the event its own identity, I think, and also would have helped us with Google searches. But I think, I think it's super important, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly responsive to what was going on back in 2004 and where the development landscape was in 2004. The other thing is, is this, um, the difference between a conference and a festival. And this is not something that I, again, not something that I considered in 2004, but I'm now deeply invested in the idea of free play as a festival, as being separate from a conference. Um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that this year because I, th I think that every type of event does a different thing very well. And, and if anyone has ever heard me speak before, I, I repeatedly sort of have this mantra that not everybody wants the same thing. Um, not everyone wants to work in a studio. Not everyone wants to, to make millions of dollars out of their games. Some people are quite happy just tinkering around you know, their things in their bedroom or producing art. And I think that when you sort of conflate a conference and a festival, it confuses what both of those things are. Um, and here's, here's where I think free play is important. A conference is about practitioners talking to other practitioners, right? That's, that's largely what they are. Whereas I think what a festival does is two things. It takes the work of a creative community, takes the work of a creative sector, and says to the world, hey, everyone, this is what we do. And at the same time, what it does is it takes the other parts of the world and says to a creative community, here's a whole bunch of other stuff that you might not have thought about. Um, and so for us, the distinction between free play being an independent game developers conference, being an independent game developers festival, in 2004 was largely uh, about funding because we discovered that we weren't eligible for certain funding sources um, if we were a conference over a festival. But now it's so much uh, an essential part of what free play is and what I believe other festivals like Indicate, like the IGF, like Game City are. They are inclusive in a way that I think a conference probably isn't. They are outward looking in a way that I think a conference probably isn't and a conference probably shouldn't be. Um, and they are trying to create spaces for conversations. Um, what the, probably the best example uh, I have for that is at last year's Free Play Festival. Um, if anyone attended, they will know what happened on the, the second last, on the last day in that second last session. And at the time, um, to, to fill people in, there, there was a discussion. Throughout the whole festival, there was a conversation about inclu inclusivity um, and exclusion within games and gaming community. Uh, which was sort of bubbling under for the whole two days. Uh, and then there, there was a couple of sessions where it just became the dominant conversation at the event. Um, and if you look at the conversations that have happened throughout games and gaming culture over the past year, this, this discussion about inclusion and about how we deal with gender and how we deal with um, the representation of women in games has become increasingly important um, and increasingly uh, loud. But by, when it happened at Freeplay, you know, no one was ready for it. Um, but 
free play was sort of the only place where that conversation could have happened i think you don't sort of know that it will happen until you get 200 people in a room um and there's no reason there wasn't really any other event where it could have happened in that same way um in australia i don't think it would have happened at a conference um and while at the time it was quite it took me a while to, to deal with that happening at free play but I'm incredibly proud of the fact that, that people felt ownership, that people felt a responsibility to the, the conversation um, and felt that they, that was a safe place where they could have that conversation. So that's why I think festival was really important. Um, oh, that's unfortunate. This, this says free play exists because people want to make things, which I think is the underlying philosophy of what the festival is. Um, it doesn't exist because people want to start studios because not everyone wants to start a studio. It doesn't exist because we want the games industry to grow because people will make things whether or not there's a games industry or not. Um, it doesn't exist because people want to get together and show off their games. People want to get also get together and talk about the games that they've played or the games that they've made. It's about cultural production. It's about people having a space where they can be free of a lot of those kind of economic and industrial imperatives. Um, and that's very important. And my mantra has always been, at the end of every free play, go out and, and make something. I'm slowly evolving that as we go, but I, th I think that's, what it, that's why it exists. And that's why it existed in 2004, because people were tired of working for studios on licensed titles, and they wanted to make games that they cared about, and games that were personal, and games that reflected who they are. And that's really why it was started then, and it's why we took it over in 2009, it's why we continue to do it um, in 2000 and whatever year this is, 12. Um, and this is how we do that, this is how we sort of support it. We actually have uh, a series of four things that, that Free Play does, both as an organisation and as a festival. Um, we want to support independent developers and creatives through, through workshops, through sessions, through figuring out what they might need or what they might want um, and, and giving that to them, give it, providing them a space for that, whether or not that's at the festival or in other places. We want to create presentation opportunities so that people can showcase their games um, to the general public. We want to design unique audience experiences to give them things that they've never seen before in independent games. And we're very excited about what we're planning for Free Play 2012. And the last one is we want to advocate for game video games. And I'll be careful because games and video games are different things. And um, we want to advocate for video games as cultural product. Um, we there are people who talk about industry and who do it better than us. There are people who talk about consumers who do it better than us. There are very few people who can stand up and say that we believe that these things are art and they matter. And this is why they're art and why they matter. Um, I feel like uh, frequently we have a very industrially dominated conversation locally that needs to be offset. And that's why free play exists because it's trying to present you know, that voice, that cultural voice as much as we can. And we do these things through, through a bunch of different areas. We do have a conference program. Free Play itself is not a conference, but Free Play has a conference. Um, it's far more alive. We have uh, things like workshop sessions. We had Petro Puro uh, talking before. We try and talk about games and culture and the types of games that are influencing people as they make them. Uh, the, the conference is about culture. It's not about selling. It's not about biz dev. It's not about those things. It's about how do we make things and how do we make things better? And how do we make the things that we care about making? And how do we uncover those things? And how do we get better at uncovering those things? Um, and that's, that's definitely got something that's going to continue. The other thing that we introduced last year was interviews um, at the Wheeler Center as well, so that we could actually get um, local developers and have like one-on-one -on -one time with them about about their practice and about what they thought about video games because I think it's important that if you're going to be a creative industry if you're going to be an art form 
You need to have people who are makers who can be champions of that making. We run an arcade and expo in Experimedia, which gets the bulk of our, um, our sort of audience. It was 1,800 people through that last year over a two-day period, which I think is, is, is insane for, the, for you know, a thing that's only been kind of going in the space for three years. Um, a bunch of locally independent uh, made video games. Uh, we had the Winitron there. We have information tables from the universities. This year, we're looking at uh, having a whole bunch of really unique, playful experiences in that space. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. This is sort of where we start to get away from being a conference and have this, this space where people can go and play um, and, and do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do. And also to meet creators. I think that's a big part of what we do. In 2009, we introduced awards. Uh, this is what they look like. I think they're probably the coolest video game awards, that, that you, the physical things um, that you can get. Um, it's For us, that is about championing stuff that might not get championed in any other way. Again, if you have a, if you have a, um, a video game discourse that is largely dominated by the industrial, sometimes the creative can get lost. Um, and so we, we, we introduced these so that we could promote the types of games that we were interested in, that we thought had creative and artistic and personal value. And awards are always sort of, or sort of tricky things because people get left out, but I still think they, they do have value because because we can't sort of give people a huge amount of cash to make their game but we can promote it and we can celebrate it um and last year we introduced what we called a playful program what this was was three very we weren't sure how these events were going to go um that took our plan the way that we pitched them was we want to take video games out of their traditional environments so we had uh we had a pitch of kucha night where we had a bunch of people talking about the games that shaped them and it was at the bella union uh, in Trades Hall. We had a game called Lemon Joust Club, which is the game you can see with the spoons and the lemons, um, which was hugely successful. Um, we had a, a game music night where we had a Technodrome who played video game cover music, whose cover uh, of the Pokemon theme tune is phenomenal. Uh, and we had chiptune musicians there. It was, it was the only event I've ever been or, uh, part of where people danced. And that might seem like a, a very small achievement, but it, trust me, it's awesome when people dance. Um, and really, we're definitely going to run those again because I think that that's, that's where you start to end up in that festival space, events which are about games without necessarily containing video games. Uh, we have also curated a six-week exhibition with the National Gallery of Victoria and the NGV Studio. We've worked with uh, the Emerging Writers Festival uh, on events and we'll continue to do so. We are working with Acme throughout Game Masters uh, on kind of a variant of their live in the studio events. Uh, we're also talking to other festivals about doing gaming uh, events as part of their programming. We are, we basically, we view ourselves as a cultural organization and all of the relationships that we build and all of the things that we do are about games and gaming culture and about taking what we love about games and finding ways to connect with writers and visual artists and musicians uh, and filmmakers. It's the big thing, the big thing that I noticed when I when I left development and, and moved into running the festival was that everyone in, in kind of cultural and creative industries is really keen to sort of get into the space, but they're not sure how to have the conversation. Um, I'm I'm incredibly happy that Free Play is an organisation that that can help those places have that conversation. Um, oh, yes, yes. Um, so our theme for 2012 is the the slightly pretentious chaos and grace, um, which I am perfectly happy with it being slightly pretentious it's it's about 
the political situation that we find ourselves in. It's about the systems that surround us as game developers, whether or not they're social or they're economic, um, they're political or they're personal. Um, and it's about finding the moments of beauty in that, in those systems. Um, it's far more about making things that are graceful and beautiful, even in the midst of you know, tax breaks or a studio system that, that might not be as, um, as strong as it once was. Um, in a, in a cultural conversation where despite the fact there are things like Game Masters, every couple of months there's still a piece in the newspaper that say, video games, eh? They're pretty bad for you. Um, we're trying to get, we're trying to create a, a, a concerted response to all of those things. Um, and I think that's the thing that a festival does. Coming back to what is a festival? How is it different from a conference? How is it different from a meetup? How is it different from a you know, social networking thing? How is it different to a forum? I think that's what it is. A festival says to the world, hey, everyone, this is what we do, and brings the rest of the world to the practitioners. Um, and that's, I think, all I have to say. I will, can answer questions. You get to see behind the scenes. It's pretty much PowerPoint. Um, so thank you. And if you have any questions, we can ask them. Thank you, Paul. If I could get the rest of our panellists up on the stage, I think we'll do some questions. Um, thank you. Okay. I will abuse my position of power behind this podium, if I may, and ask the first question. Um, Conrad mentioned that, like being 40 years into film, no one really knew the people who were making the films and how the games industry was very similar to that at the moment. Um, people follow their favourite game makers less, perhaps, than their favourite actors and directors. Does this have an effect on how players treat the medium, specifically when writing a game off as bad? Is it, is it easier to be mean when the games are born in pods instead of actually being made by people with real feelings? <laughs> do you think that has it's a, it's a question for everyone not just Conrad but is, is it easier to be when games are born in pods yeah <laughs> and do you think cultural spaces will help people see that there actually are people behind these games and 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 you know we're, we're, we're acknowledging our rock stars <laughs> um, in places like this and in game masters and those sorts of things is it going to make people read the credits a bit more is it going to make people you know, look at their game-making heroes a bit, and will it change how much, you know, how, how mean we are sometimes to the medium that we love so much? I, th I think people will always be mean. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think video games can change that, sadly. Um, I, I, might, I might take a stab at that. Yeah. Um, look, I, I, I think people, people, who have people who love things always know who made them. Um, and I think that people who have sort of been embedded in video game culture for a very long time have always known. It's, it's more about uh, positioning those people in, in sort of the wider mainstream of the culture um, rather than necessarily to the, the people who are embedded in the culture. Um, but even, I mean, even within the culture, people are, if you sort of take video game culture as a whole, um, it, it, it becomes like little subcultures and then those subcultures are mean about other subcultures. It's like VHS and Betamax. Yep. You know, it's like PlayStation and, and, and Xbox. It's like, well, you bought, you bought a console that's rubbish. It's like, well, well, so did you. 
you know, people, it's like, mm, we're not going, we're not going to find any middle ground here, are we? Um, so, I'm actually, you know, even going back, like people would complain about the LucasArts games compared to the Sierra point-and-click games. So the, these things that people are tribal. Um, mm. the, the best that we can sort of do is try and encourage people to be nicer. I think. Maybe a bit of grace in all that chaos. Nice. Um, <laughs> Linda showed us the, um, the exhibition of board games at the SLQ. Um, what's the importance of non-video games in spruiking the value of playing games to a broader audience? Um, and do you think acceptance of non-video games translates to a better understanding of their digital counterparts? I think it's, um, it's interesting because when we've been talking about the summer of games or games lounge and been talking about video games and, you know, there is uh, the comment was made earlier about, you know, every now and again, Paul was saying, you know, people come out and say, oh, video games are bad for you. Well, you know, they go home and then they play Scrabble or they play Monopoly, you know, and it's still, it's a game. It's a different, on a different platform. It's actually still a technology um, and you're playing. So um, are you going to say that Scrabble and Monopoly are bad for you too? And so, you know, I think, (laughs) I mean, that's just stupid and crazy. So um, really for us in the cultural space, um, and as Paul was saying, um, is exposing the behind the scenes to the mainstream you know, that's really where we sit in State Library. I mean, The Edge has all those really cool subcultures where they argue about their consoles and whatever. And and for us, we're dealing with the other kind of million people who may not necessarily know the behind the scenes. And so we want to expose the rock stars, but also the pure talent in all of their individual areas and ensure that people aren't kind of saying board games are good and video games are bad. Um. You also showed us, Linda, while, I, while I've got you, because it's just us, um, you showed us that the State Library of Queensland was definitely more than just a house of books. Mm. Um, you've even published your own game. Where do you see libraries as cultural spaces evolving as we begin to treat them more as a cultural hub? It's been really exciting because we've also just developed um, an augmented reality app called Floodlines, which um, kind of takes the floods of 2011 and 3D simulates them and allows people to 3D simulate flooding in about 14 suburbs um, and hopefully across Queensland. So we are really starting to play in this publishing space and, and turning that on its head and we're not asking publishers to publish for us and we're not asking distributors to distribute for us. We're actually doing both of those things. And But weirdly enough, we're not really publishing books as such. So I, I'd love to see us, especially libraries, in the publishing arena and really starting to turn it on its head. And even, um, you know, in our recent conversations with the film industry, how we could become a distributor and a publisher of film so that, um, you know, that the actual artist behind the scene gets um, bigger bang for their buck, I guess. Well said, well said. Um, does any, any one of the panellists would like to refer to anything that one of the other panellists said before I open it up to the floor? anyone get angry while anyone else was talking or anything like that? I already apologised to you, okay? <laughs> okay, good. I saw it on Twitter. <laughs> if anyone want to ask, wants to ask about gamification, no. yes. I won't be saying that word again. There's a table right here. <laughs> um, I might open up to the floor then if that's all right. Um, I, I believe we have a roving microphone. There's the first question right there, yep. Hi, I'm Melanie Swalwell from um, Flinders and the Play It Again Game History and Preservation Project. Thank you, Linda Pitt. I am going to quote um, these beautiful comments that you made all over the place. There is a huge deficit in Queensland at the moment because they don't have a game preserve a game collection. 
it's really exciting to actually um, get that topic put on the agenda, I think, in this context of this panel. Um, and so encouraging that you want to get some action happening around it. So um, fabulous, and I want to talk to you afterwards. Mm -hmm. My question is, um, could you expand a little bit more on, on the plans or, or how you see this Summer of Games or the Game Lounge as um, going towards that goal of, of getting the State Library of Queensland into that space? Because I wasn't quite clear on that. So, okay, Thank so you. yeah, so State Library of Queensland um, has a remit to collect Queensland's memory of you know, Queensland's culture. And so at the moment we collect all sorts of different things, um, you know, images and film and um, stuff, you know, other things. And um, But games is just not there. And that's a huge part of our culture. And really when you look at what we value culturally games needs to be on that register and um so we those conversations were started when we brought in game on and um you know it was this constant conversation about what i spoke about earlier about preservation and what do we do with the tech but it didn't really go anywhere so there was just this um you know like a lot of books were bought around games and game development and um it hasn't moved since and we're still just kind of rolling around in those questions and um so really what we want to do is prove that Queensland has a, an amazing video game culture and a game culture um, outside of just video games and also board games, etc. And that we actually, they are cultural artefacts. They're really complex artefacts and they need to be preserved so that in a hundred years' time, we can have that exhibition on where Queensland has gone in their journey. I mean, we have an exhibition at the moment on 1893 flooding and we've got the most amazing artefacts, you know, maps and all sorts of images and photographs. And I think, well, that's what we valued in 1893 and that's what we collected. And so in 100 years from now, when people wonder what we valued and what we c cared about in 2012, will it just be images and photographs and film about games or will it be the games themselves? So... Um, yeah, that's what I'm hoping Games Lounge will kind of continue to stimulate that conversation around um, and also start to, if we can open up that conversation, people may start to want to donate and share their share their work with us and I think that would be a big step too because we haven't really made that call out or that collection initiative yet, so I'm hoping it will stimulate that conversation as well. Yeah, well maybe I could just pick up on that because... Mm. Um, you know, obviously in our travels kind of uh, to put on Game Masters, we were talking to a lot of major publishers and developers about, um, you know, their work. And, uh, you know, the, the sad fact is that, you know, developers and publishers haven't kind of archived material over the years. So for many, many major games, there's very little kind of, um, you know, documentary evidence of the development of those those games. Um, you know, we, we were... Um, you know, we've been doing a lot with Sega, for for example, in Japan, and they, they just don't have any um, uh, artifacts that link to any of their early kind of AM3 kind of arcade games. The arcade games kind of exist, um, and we know there were beautiful kind of blueprints and drawings and concept art and things like that, but all of, all of that's already disappeared mm -hmm. because um, developers kind of, you know, chuck it away because they need to move on to the next project. And, um, you know, I, th I think, um, you know, where we've really sort of, being successful is when, when we've dealt with companies that have had a real vision to kind of collect that material and um, so there are le legacy artefacts around and uh, as I was saying earlier Blizzard is a company like that that has a tremendous kind of um, archive of both hand-drawn and digital artwork and um, you know it's a real resource for people like me I can kind of go, go there and look at the material and we can put it on the walls in, in the gallery um, but you know beyond that I mean I think it 
really sort of um, collecting has been in the hands of, of, of the fans, the collectors. And I know there's some of them over, over here. Um, Pedro over there, who's lent a lot of his, um, his material kind of uh, to the exhibition. Really, museums and galleries are kind of way behind the game in this, this area, but it's, um, it's the collectors that are really um, have been kind of uh, researching this area, acquiring rare material. And, um, you know, it's I guess it's down to us building up relationships with um, the, the fan community in order to try and ac acquire the best examples of that kind of material that's around, but uh, within certain parameters, because obviously this is a massive field and we need to, I think as institutions, be very clear about what we're collecting and how that kind of complements things that you might be collecting so that we're not all after the same thing. So it's a very kind of complex series of, of, of issues. Um, and that's just kind of getting the stuff. I mean, you know, there's a whole other range of issues about how one actually kind of preserves the material and continues to make it available for visitors to play and so on. I think we've got another question just next to you. If the microphone's still... No, you've got one up there? All right. Hello. Ooh. Hi. <laughs> Testing now. I've got a question for Ricardo. I'm interested in the crossover between um, games and performance. Um, I come from a theatre background, and so uh, my interest is, is more about how do we take what's essentially the game mechanics and ideas and what's happening in terms of performance and games. And if you can talk about, I suppose, a little bit more about um, uh, game culture interventions. Sure. <coughs> Look, I think that's an interesting one because we, we haven't got a, a very strong performance a group, well, a group of performers in Australia that work really well with, with digital dramaturgy, what I call digital dramaturgy, or you know, Helen Skye is a performer in Melbourne, she calls it electrophysical dramaturgy, where they work with different you know, uh, sensors and different kind of access points on their body to kind of generate sound images, etc., around them. We, we, we do, did give an, what we called an Art Lab initiative grant to uh, Gurkham and uh, Araklu, I think that's how you pronounce her surname, and she's working with a group of uh, theatre practitioners at the moment to see how to interface with virtual spaces, with motion tracking systems, with, the, with different electronic mediums to engage in that, in that digital performance space. I think uh, organisations like Chunky Moves have done kind of extraordinary work in that in that space with uh, engineers like Frieda Weiss from from uh, Germany, so that kind of real time real time feedback with that with the visuals that Chunky Moves have developed, I think is kind of an extraordinary example of of some of the work in this space that's worked really well. But I think theatre is still a little bit behind in that space. So hopefully, through initiatives like um, this Art Lab initiative with with, with Gurkham, people will start thinking about this space in different ways. These art lab initiatives aren't kind of outcome-based initiatives, and I think that's the key with a lot of the work that we try and seed fund at the Australia uh, Council, through the Interarts Office in particular. We try and fund process-driven laboratories in a sense. So, you know, the Splendid initiative that I talked about previously that uh, Jimmy's work kind of came out of, that laboratory called the Splendid Lab wasn't about creating new work. It was about thinking about this work in a different type of space. And I think offering artists and collaborators across different disciplines, not just within the arts, that opportunity to think differently about their work, develop networks and collaborators from other disciplines, that is what will help us you know, push 
really interesting performative practice into um, you know engaging with different types of interfaces with you know, video games with virtual worlds with digital dramaturgy motion tracking a range of things got one just here Testing, testing. This is just, it came up in your talk, Linda, about um, the way that you're uh, putting, you're, you're trying to let people see behind the development process of the game and uh, <coughs> show more people how that process is and that there's people behind it. And I, it just kind of came up for me that uh, it's very easy if I want to go out and I wanted to get into an art class, I could do that very easily. And there is some universities around Australia that are starting to take up games as a serious uh, method of study. And, uh, um, and I was just wondering, uh, do you think that doing these kind of exhibitions and uh, uh, broadening this, this space for games and culture will allow us to have, um, to, to better educate people on how, how to develop uh, games and, and what it really takes to make them uh, beyond just these kind of niche game masters event here and uh, select university course here? Is that kind of broadening the way we can learn about developing it? And this is a question for all of you. I think educate and appreciate. And there's certainly a role, though, with with um, exhibitions like Game Masters or Game On because you get to see the, the product and the outcome and then all of the complementary programming that's built around it. So all of the kind of talks, these forums, everything else that's built around it then kind of fills and the pieces so this sh this particular games lounge kind of serves both of those purposes because it will have kind of the the playable um it will have of course all the playable games that are available in the, in the queensland market and um but at the same time it will explore the behind the scenes so it will do a little bit of both um and really for a lot of people it'll just be general appreciation and then there will be that um those subgroups that will want a, the, the more in-depth masterclass um, workshop approach. And we run them quite frequently, actually, for all sorts of things. And um, especially we noticed then that um, when QUT with um, the aunties, with Truna and Luby, when they're just about to kick off their 48-hour gaming challenge, you know that our Android um, game-making workshops are packed out all of a sudden. And, and so there is a demand out there because there are all these other initiatives where... Um, that are built around and so we try to just um, support the market and support what other areas are doing um, through education but and really for us the overall appreciation is what we, we what we want out of the mainstream for people just to appreciate the level of artistic skill and form that's there behind the scenes I think on, on the education front there's there's sort of there's sort of a lot of, of um components to education uh, and especially education as it relates to games and also as the way that games relate to education and video games relate to education you know if you're just talking about core production skills um, compared to you know a greater sense of games literacy or the use of games as educational tools in the same way that books or films are so I think I think one of the challenges with when you start to talk about what, what are we teaching people well it's like well what do they want to be taught about games because not everyone wants production skills um, not, and not everyone wants production skills that are going to feed into a studio environment. Um, people might want production skills that will help them be better creative thinkers or, or start their own or, or go into a business. Um, other people might just want um, greater video game literacy skills, so they might just want to sit and talk about you know, video game appreciation effectively. Um, and I think it, it's about what events like Game Masters do is they show the need for all of that. And I think the same with the State Library of Queensland. It's about going, okay, so we sort of have this idea that we, we need education about video games. 
And then when you actually sort of crack that open, there's all of these different areas that, that people need. And it's about finding the right space and the, and the right sort of people to, to facilitate that. And also to make sure that it connects with, with what, like, what the audience actually wants. You know, um, you know, the people that come to free play don't necessarily want, um, so, I mean, some of them do, but some of them don't necessarily want to know how to start a studio or how to use Unity as an engine or what, how do they get a career in games. It's, it's another thing that they want in terms of their education access. So yeah, so I, I think that event, events like Game Masters are really important because they shine a light and get people going, oh, actually, like, what are the, what's the nuance of this conversation? I think yeah. we've got one up the back, did we? Yes, we do. <laughs> Hi, my name's Jonathan, and my microphone is, yes, is working. <laughs> this is uh, about a point that um, Paul mentioned. Uh, the idea of games as art, is there paintings and film and uh, literature have or seem to have the ability to reach people internally and change minds, at least for some people, and some art can do that. Do you think that there has been a computer game uh, that has managed to do that yet? And because certainly games have been iconic and they have changed um, uh, or had impact on kind of culture, but do you think there have been games that have kind of changed people's minds, opinions and feelings and if not, is do you think there's any coming up in the near future? <laughs> That's a big one. Okay. <laughs> where to start? Where to start? Uh, so, so, so video games are art. Let, let's all take that as read. The question then becomes how are video games art? Um, video games are art because they are... Uh, systems that evolve over time that create emotional responses in the audience right um video games have changed hands up who plays video games in this room okay so video games have changed all of your lives in some way in some sort of meaningful way or, or slightly less meaningful way right like that you've all had an emotional response to playing some game that has made you go you know what i want to do with my life i want to make video games i want to talk about video games i want to bore the, the pants off my girlfriend talking about video games i want to go out and have coffee and talk with my friends about video games your lives have been changed um for better or worse that's a value judgment that you will have to make uh specifically games that have sort of given me a really strong emotional reaction and made me stop and think about my own life and, and parts of the human condition uh deus ex uh has been one <laughs> someone would uh journey recently uh was an amazing uh you know emotional experience um as was dear esther um whether or not those games would have the same emotional impact on everyone i don't i don't think so but yeah but like not every film does and not every book does um you know, I, I think I think that to 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 conflate a medium with the individual response to that medium, and then use that to ascribe value to the entire medium, is not necessarily helpful distinction. Uh, this video game made me feel this way, as a person, is really useful. Um, saying, can video games make everyone feel that way? Um, yeah. It's not, it's not really that helpful. I think, I think the more specific we are about what we're trying to achieve and what games are trying to achieve, the better that conversation is. It's like saying, um, will we ever have the Citizen Kane of video games? 
Will we ever have the Citizen Kane of poetry? Will we ever have the Citizen Kane of um, of novels? Will we ever have the you know the Ulysses um, of of dance? It's like these are sort of completely <laughs> these are completely arbitrary distinctions that aren't necessarily helpful because every medium does its own thing in a very different way. At some point, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That 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 got that got ranty in a way that I wasn't expecting it to, as you can, <laughs> as you can probably tell. Um, An emotional response. Have have video games changed the world? Yes, because they exist in a world that has video games in them. <laughs> Thank you. I think we've got the mic over here. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. 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 Hey. Um, yeah. Um, a few months ago, I went down to the Museum of Contemporary Art up in Sydney, and um, I just, you know, just casually browsing, and I happened to see um, that 24-hour movie called The Clock, mm-hmm. and it was just, you know, just part of um, all the other artworks and stuff, all in its own separate room because, yeah, it was a movie and all. But yeah, um, I don't know it just kind of reminded me of um, the video games here. Will, um, will video games be ever? Well, will there be a point where, like, you can juxtapose, like, I don't know, Halo with a Picasso right next to it without having, you know, its own festival, Game Masters Festival or its own, um, you know, free play festival, rather make have it, like, you know, stand alone within the art gallery? I'll quickly go, <laughs> and then you can jump in. Um, look, I think it's happening already with uh, Anita Fontaine's Qdex Doom 2. That was on display in Goma as part of the New Media Arts exhibition there. And this was 2010, I think, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. And so you know, she could sit next to Christian McClay's uh, clock. There was a DMCA. I don't think there's an issue about that at all. I think it's just to do with the type of, uh, the type of game that curators kind of engage with and, and what those games are saying and how they intervening you know, in our cultural spaces, I guess. So there's, there's different levels of that kind of intervention and questioning about what it is that we do as human beings, I, I guess. And Qdex Doom is a really interesting example for me. Um, others might disagree. So I, I, you know, it's happening already, and I can't see mm. why it shouldn't be happening in the future. It's, it's, it's a good question, that, though, because you, what you're picking up on is, is quite a divide, r- really, kind of within the, within the art world, you know. Um, I mean, you know, I, t- I talked about doing a kind of um, a video games exhibition kind of in, a, in an art gallery, but that, that exhibition was about the commercial kind of games industry, and Game Masters is about the commercial games industry. We're not showing artists' work, you know, artists like Christian, Christian Markley, who sort of shows in, in galleries. So there is, um, you know, wh- whether, um, you know, the MCA would make the leap um, to do a, a video games exhibition um, which was purely focused on the commercial games arena, you know, I, I doubt it. I think we're a long way off of that. Whether games will begin to slip into kind of art galleries, I think prob- probably they will, you know, when uh, curators start looking at reflecting on our era and um, and it's the diversity of media forms that we're, we're, we're working with is so immense today, you know, that it will be ine- inevitable that Halo will be in a, in a gallery next to Christian Markley work. And he's a big gamer, actually, so it's, uh, yeah. Um, but I there's, um, yeah... When I did Game On originally in London, we actually commissioned a series of artists to make kind of artworks in response to video games, you know. And I think that's... So there's a there's an area of um, contemporary art practice which looks at video games in one way or another, which is what Ricardo's just been talking about. But we, w- when we did Game Masters here, we made you know, a real distinction, wanted to 
focus on video game developers who were operating kind of within a sort of commercial um, environment. Yeah, so we, uh, kind of a bit different. Yeah, we um, just had a children's illustration exhibition. Yeah, it's not Picasso, but um, I guess we're allowed to do that kind of stuff at the library. And um, we had a children's illustrations exhibition. And as part of that, I wanted to put games into what was quite a static show. It was actually down here in Victoria. It was called Look and um, at SLV. And um, so I wanted to put games in it um, so that children had an opportunity to play and experience amazing storytelling and also create their own uh, stories as well through the medium of game. And um, so we had the games amongst the other artworks and illustrations that were on the wall and we had a kind of dedicated space. And parents were coming up to me and getting really irritated and saying, you know, my children keep going to the area where they can create and use these games instead of looking at the artwork, you know. And so it was this really interesting... I'd have these weird arguing conversations with parents about what is art and, you know, that this is art and that thing on the wall that's in a frame is art. It's all art, you know, and it's just that your children find the other stuff more interesting. I can't help that. It's just where you raised your kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry for your children. But... um, You know, and then I had other kind of grandparents coming and thanking me and asking me where they can buy all the devices that all the games were on just to keep their kids happy. So, um, you know, it's, I think we almost have, um, we need to do it now. I think people actually expect us at State Library of Queensland to constantly have a creation or a game element to all of our shows, um, regardless of whether it's our art on a wall or not um it needs to have a have a play element a creation element as part of as part of the show against the static stuff on the walls i think we've got one just Hello. there uh i've got a um, a question and it's a bit about the comment that was made earlier around you'll be collecting the um the game's history that people 100 years now will come back and look at and say, this is, this is what we were, this is what we were interested in, and really, this is how we did it. And I'm wondering, um, especially thinking that since probably the 80s, there's, there's been an ever-growing number of games coming out of the industry, and that's, that's really skyrocketing at the moment with the mobile platforms. What characteristics do you look for as curators in holding on to that history? What, what, what makes one game different to another and worthy of being kept? I actually don't have an answer to that question, but I can say it's something we're battling at the moment with anything that we collect because when you look at it through a particular lens, everything's a treasure. You know, someone's trash is another person's treasure. And so this map, this flood map of 1893, previous to flooding, the latest floods, we kind of looked at that and thought, nah, you know, and we'd keep it away. And we didn't even bother to preserve it correctly in the sense that we didn't have it in a beautiful frame and we didn't have it in climate control trolled like right out the back and all pristine and it was only until the floods that we revisited those materials with completely new eyes and went this is a treasure like this is something we really have to value here so I don't have an answer to that question because that's something that is becoming more and more apparent to me that um, whatever the hell is happening to us at the time we just see things in completely different light and all of a sudden these things become treasures overnight almost yeah it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a hard one to answer that. I mean, it's mm. um, uh, you know, we're, we're, 
although you know we've had 40 years of history and vi video games are still at the very early kind of stages of, of history really and I think you know it's curators need to sort of find kind of um, games through a kind of critical context you know it's through uh, a sense of history uh, writing criticism and, and debate um, and through that process as in kind of the development of art, art history you know key works will be will have light shed, shed on them and, and, and a context will be created. And I think it, it's at that point, you know, institutions need to start looking at key works and saying we, we need to, there is now a substantial bod body of dialogue and discussion and de debate that has raised this particular work up um, and, uh, and it's now re has a status that we should collect it. And I think that we're still in uh, our, our very early days, you know, I mean, it, it's kind of, um, you know, if you're thinking about beginning to collect consoles, like where, you, where would you start? You know, there have probably been several, how many hundred consoles have been produced, Pedro? I mean, hundreds. hundreds. And so where, where do you start? How, how do you know which ones are more significant than, 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 than the others? I, I don't think we're quite, kind of quite there yet. We can't work out whether we should co collect a kind of Atari 260 or a, or a PlayStation 3, you know. Um, yeah. now we take for granted, but things that were made in the past are still unique to some of the people mm. now. So it's a good way to preserve the history, giving everybody the chance to interact with what was in the past to what we're just coming to, to the future. Mm. So that's why we collect, to preserve that and give everyone the opportunity, also for educational purposes, on how these games were created, as basic as they were, the challenge was still there. So it's, mm. it's about giving everybody the chance to see what you can create, because one idea that was once uh, one game, then was made into another game, then those two ideas came into one game, so it's a collaboration of imagination and ideas made throughout the history through all the developers, and inspiring the gamers that are yourselves or future developers. That's what, what we should preserve, because it, it sort of teaches everybody that you can, um, that you have the opportunity to sort of create as well through this medium. I mean, I, th I think you know exhibitions like Game Masters are important because you know what we're trying to do is sort of uh, you know flag up a c kind of a range of a series of bodies of work. You know, fr from that maybe uh, we'd, we've done some deep research, we've identified materials, and then you know there's then opportunities for cu curators at institutions to come along and say, well, maybe we should kind of acquire this material. So. <laughs> I think yeah. we've got time for one more question. Last one. Um, hi, uh, Tereki Rangimanku oh. from um, the Museum of New Zealand, just um, just up here. Oh, hi. Sorry, I thought I'd just sneak this, uh, sneak this <laughs> in because I've, uh, I've, I've missed two questions. But um, firstly, um, thank you to the panel. It's been a really wonderful uh, session this afternoon. My, quesh my question is just around, um, and it's for uh, Dr. Dr. Peach, really, um, medical applications for games and, um, and digital interactives, um, things greater than, uh, greater than games, and, um, and I think it was... Um, Justin Brow, who uh, started talking about um, things that are outside of non-entertainment. Um, Jonathan Duckworth's um, elements, um, is, is that um, alone, or is it a, a big area that's being developed um, in terms of interactives? Sure, and it's a doctrine philosophy, not medicine, so I won't be able to talk about the medical uh, uh, applications of it in, in detail, but your know, elements, is one of those ARC linkage grants that uh, comes through an initiative called the Synapse Art Science Initiative. And that's where we, you know, artists link up with uh, 
hospitals or science organizations to develop new applications and new ideas in particular uh, science settings. And this uh, work Elements by Jonathan Duckworth was the first stage, the first ARC linkage to kind of help traumatic brain injury patients develop strength again in, in their motor coordination systems. We since then funded, um, uh, we're in another industry, uh, we're an industry partner on another ARC linkage again with Jonathan Duckworth um, and um, I think with a Catholic university to develop a more spatialized uh, immersive environment for uh, traumatic brain injury patients as well. So there'll be an extension of that particular uh, you know, desktop uh, application into a more spatialized 3D version. So you know, we're looking forward to seeing how that will evolve. But then you know, people like George Kutt working with that biofeedback, uh, the, the two biofeedback projects, cardiomorphologies and the, the heart library project, they, he, he worked in, the, in hospital settings with, with both of those, and more particularly the Heart Library Project with, at Westmead in Sydney. And those applications are being taken on by the hospitals. So, you know, they're they assisting patients to, to control their own pain or kind of be pain relief systems, and they are art at the same time. So there's this interesting joining of the arts and sciences where you know, the one is both. We are looking to fund more and more of those kind of uh, projects as, as you know as they as people approach us, because we're finding that artists are working less as individual artists and more as collaborative teams across a range of disciplines. I think the Australian Network of Art and Technology in Adelaide did some preliminary research last year, not extensive research, um, showing that artists who work with technology in particular take a lot longer to mature. And they don't come out as individual artists; they come out as teams, and they, they and they are having to collaborate more and more with non-arts industries to be able to deliver what it is that they need to deliver in this interactive, uh, technology-based environment. Because that's what people kind of expect. People are expecting this type of art to kind of evolve, and the artists are interested in working in that space. So I suspect it's kind of a slow burner, but there's going to be more and more of that collaborative process and projects coming our way. I think we had. One down here, and I think that'll be our last one. Firstly, I'd, I'd just like to say thank you very much to all of you for your effort in exposing, supporting, and chronicling uh, games. I think it's a very significant. Um, my question is, and this is something that I think Linda highlighted and Conrad touched on briefly, uh, we talked about IP issues um, with collecting and maintaining games and copyright issues as well. Um, have you encountered or do you envision encountering um, license restrictions and enforcement by DRM as being an issue, particularly as games move beyond the lifespan of their creators? Um, well, I mean, you know, that, that this is something I have to deal with every day in kind of all my work kind of in exhibitions at Acme. Um, you know, every, every game that is in that exhibition has got a license agreement with the IP owner. And, um, you know, I've, I've had to have someone working on just doing that for six months which can be very, very complex sometimes. Um, I mean, one of the complexities is actually talking to video game publishers and developers um, about what the nature of the project and the institution is, because, um, you know, publishers are not used to having their IP shown within kind of gallery contexts. And uh, so, you know, working with the major studios, you know, with like Nintendo and Sony and Sega and so on, a lot, a lot of the battle is actually just explaining what your, what your event is and actually finding the right people. Um, 
I mean, my, my approach is never to let anybody say no to you um, and that there will always be somebody in the company which has sympathy with what, what you're doing. And it was, it was great talking to Warren kind of um, earlier on. You know, I mean, he, he was sort of, uh, he's from New York originally and he was brought up in the Museum of Modern Art in New York and he works for Disney and, you know, he knows what museums and galleries are. And um, you can always find someone that will provide a license agreement um, uh, for you, but woe betide you if you forget to get one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a complexity for organisations like us because we're, we're working on an educational basis. We're not for profit. We're not trying to um, make, make money. You know, we're using tax, taxpayers' money to, to try and kind of, um, you know, shed light on a whole range of su subject areas. And, um, you know, um, getting licence clearance is an expense, you know, particularly working with big film companies um, where we have to pay big, big fees. And uh, that's, that's just a reality of the sort of context working in Australia bit different in the United States because um, there are much wider kind of educational uses so you don't always have to kind of get license agreements in the States for showing uh, film clips and, and video games and so on but you do here so we have to kind of abide by uh, those regulations and um, but you know m mostly people are happy when they understand what you're doing to kind of give you permission and we haven't pay paid any developer or publisher a fee to show any material in this exhibition so um, and everyone's sort of generally very supportive as long as you get to the right person. Yeah, I think um, with any of the work that we deal with at the library, because we showcase a range of different things all year round, we're constantly having to get IP or copyright, you know, um, even th things that you wouldn't think you need to. So like YouTube, Channel 9 and 10 and ABC had clips on there recently that we wanted to use and they were on YouTube, uploaded by them and by others. And when we rang them to ask if we could use it, they had um, they passed us on to like their sales team who were going to charge us $30,000 to use five of their clips that was free to air, you know, so you kind of go, $30,000. So then you do have to, yeah, as Conrad said, you don't take that as an answer and you don't take no for an answer, so it's about, and we have zero dollars that we're going to spend on it, so how do you negotiate? So, th yeah, it does, it, it took us almost a year to negotiate that deal uh, for a particular exhibition just to get those five clips in the show. And... Um, yeah, we just, that's part of, I guess, the business of museums and galleries that um, we're constantly working with either the creators or the distributors around licensing and copyright so that we can provide access. Have you had to deal with, with DRM specifically, with the, the sort of technical integration with the software in question? Not to date. Not me in particular. Um. I d I'm not sh sure quite where you're coming from with the qu with the question. Can you? Um, yeah, we'll talk about that afterwards. But yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly we, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, we deal with IP owners kind of all the time. Yeah. That's unfortunately all we've got time for. Um, if you do have any further questions, feel free to hunt our panelists down. Um, in a not good in way. a bad way. In a good way. In a good way. Will you join me in thanking Paul Callahan, Linda Pitts, Ricardo Peach, and Conrad Bodman? You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.